Welcome to Multiple Offers, a real estate show with competing perspectives. This week, we are talking politics. Put that coffee down. If you're good at something, never do it for free. How'd you get the gig? Oh, you know, they were hiring. It was only a two-week course. I will sell this house today. What are you, some kind of real estate agent? Oh, he's a realtor. There is a difference somehow. This is Multiple Offers, a real estate show. All right, so we are at episode 21. This um, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode for us. Um, we have, because we have a civic election coming up, we've got a couple of the councillors here in-house. Um, Matt and I have been really, really excited about this episode for a while, eh, Matt? Kind oh, of yeah, been, we've, been, we've been planning this for, for a long time. You guys just didn't know. <laughs> a, few, <laughs> a, few, uh, a few months. Um, just excited to get, obviously, we're our real estate companies, the new S guys, um, proud about this city, wanted to kind of create an outlet for these guys to come in. Um, this week, we have the incumbents here. And well, the incumbents who are running for re-election. For re-election. <laughs> Let's take a minute to introduce ourselves and our show. Some of you may be listening for the first time. We are Multiple Offers, a real estate show with competing perspectives. And our usual format includes three co-hosts who dive into real estate industry secrets and tips for consumers. And even a lot of our ris- listeners are realtors as well. Uh, we are local experienced real estate agents, and all three of us are New West residents. I am Matt Brabens, uh, joined today by my partner, Jeremy Ray. We fly under the real estate brand known as the New West Guys, and unfortunately, our third co-host, Jeff McLennan, had some family commitments and was not able to join us this week, uh, but we will definitely be hearing from him next week, and we'll be really happy to have him back. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Starting with, I'll kind of go through here. I'll tell you who we have here, and then maybe we give them a minute to, to tell us a bit about themselves, Matt. Yeah, let's get some introductions and get things going. Okay, so we have, uh, right beside me, Mr. Patrick Johnstone. Hello, I'm Patrick Johnstone. I'm a first-term city councillor, hoping to get on for a second term. Good stuff. And we have Mary Trebadu. Trentadu. Trentadu. No oh, problem. so close. That's that happens okay. a lot, probably. Uh, it does. Some it people does. get it wrong yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I am also um, currently serving my first term in New West. Uh, I don't think we can call ourselves the newbies anymore, Patrick. We've put in four years and we're both looking for re-election and um, yeah. super excited to be in a campaign season. We still have that new councillor smell. <laughs> a little bit. Oh, I don't smell, but maybe you do. Are you, are you, the, you guys are the two newest. We are the two newest. The two newest yeah. to the group. These okay. are the oldest. Okay. We're the newest. Nice. <laughs> All right, and then beside we have Mr. Chuck Puckmeyer. Wow, and you got the name right. That's amazing. There you go. Thanks the the veteran? Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I first was elected in 1996. Uh, I've done, I think, four or five terms on council. I did one term as an MLA. And um, I'm proudly running uh, with uh, Jonathan Cote and uh, Team Cote. Um, we're not an election team. We are all independents, but we're pooling our resources so that we can reach out to the public greater. But the city is done incredible work last year yeah cool and last but not least jamie mcavoy jamie mcavoy been a counselor for nine years i'm a member of the mayor's task force on housing and have been working on housing issues long before i became a counselor although the most fun i ever had was when william shatner let me speak to a star trek convention there you go (laughs) that was the best council day there's a good story i'm sure uh behind that one sounds housing related yeah, <laughs> we can do that after. He's uh, okay for his housing. 
That's cool. So uh, we're, we're going to keep this light, but we want to speak to the topics that our, our listeners, the citizens of New West, want to hear. Uh, we're going to try to keep things moving along to, to address those topics. But if you have something you want to say, definitely contribute. Um, help each other out if you can. Uh, we're not, and just for our listeners to understand as we set up this episode, the intent here is not to hit you with any gotcha questions where we set you up. We, we, we sincerely, as residents ourselves, just want to hear what your thoughts, your plans are to affect housing in your next term. I mean, we know a lot of what's already gone on in the previous term, and we know that the market's changed a lot and had effects on, on rentals and ownership, but we want to talk about the future. So that's what we're going to do here, and we're going to try to keep it really constructive. Um, now, obviously, everybody has individual opinions on these things. Jeremy and I are doing everything we can to keep our opinions out of this and act as facilitators. So all of the citizens of New West get a chance to hear uh, what your thoughts and your plans are. So uh, we also want to just get a little bit uh, philosophical in you know, the baseline of where your ideas come from. Why, why did you first run for councillor? Why are you running for re-election? Uh, Mary, let's start with you. Oh, thank you. Um, so, well, I actually was a city councillor in North Vancouver in the city uh, in 2008. And I got a taste for um, being involved in my community at a level where you can actually do some policy work right. and and listen to the community and it I found it really rewarding. So when I moved to New West, I looked into doing that work again. I think it's amazing work. Uh, you get to meet all kinds of people at all different levels um, and you get to contribute in a way that is really meaningful. And so for me, that's why I do it. I think where where I live is the most important thing to me and I want to contribute to what my city looks like. Well, thank Stuff. you, Mary. Jamie? It was more of a natural evolution for me. I'd been involved in the city for a few decades before I was on council. And um, I'll make sure I don't, uh, don't knock bump, anything don't bump the equipment. over here it's, for the viewers and my coffee. Temperamental today. <laughs> but I, I had been on the boards or nonprofits of about 22 local organizations. I'd been the president of 12th Street Neighborhood Society and the Brow of the Hill Residents Association. When I ran for council, it just People asked me to run, and it just seemed uh, to be more of a natural evolution. It, it was something I had vaguely had in my head, but it wasn't until people asked me to run that I really considered it. And when I walked around City Hall being introduced to people, I read, already knew half of them through my community work and right. community activism. Yeah, lots of it's volunteering of time. Absolutely. And so, Chuck, you mentioned before, you've got a pretty deep political background. So as far as City Council goes, what brought you there and why are you running for re-election? Well, I lived in the community for a long time and uh, close to 12th Street, and there were a lot of issues of crime, graffiti, um, prostitution. Um, I was always uh, complaining to people that would listen in the city, policing and uh, and other councillors, and somebody said, well, why don't you just run? So, um, you know, worked on a residence, started a residence association and got active and uh, was elected and was able to tackle some of these issues uh, quite successfully that uh, were a concern to me and my community. Well, thank you, Chuck. And Patrick? Yeah, I think like my colleagues, it just started with being uh, an activist in the community, about being concerned about the community. I was, I've always been interested in sustainability issues. I'm an environmental scientist. I've, I've always been concerned about, uh, about active transportation in the city. And I became a bit of a, I became very outspoken in New Westminster in my adopted home. I love the city, and I, but I saw ways that I thought that um, we could improve on, on the things the city's doing. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, 
was very outspoken. And after a while, when you're outspoken, people ask you to eventually step <laughs> in and actually do something about it. Do something about, about it. You, you had probably, to this day, one of the best couples Halloween costumes I've ever seen. Thank you. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, Fill us in. Fill us in. He uh, and his partner, wife. Uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, they went as the, the couple's costume, Patello Bridge. Yeah, and that was an example. I mean, we were having conversations <laughs> in the city about the Patello Bridge and about the future of the Patello Bridge. And uh, I didn't see enough community activity about it. I know we were having public meetings. I didn't see enough of the public getting involved in that conversation. So uh, one Halloween, I made a two-person costume of the Patillo Bridge, and I went out to uh, events and handed out pamphlets, <laughs> asked people to come and take part in the public consultation yeah. about wow. Patillo Bridge. And it's still a hot sort of topic. I guess, does it still feel like for you guys that it's something that gets talked about a lot or people are... Well, you know what, we've we've had so much success uh, when they were going to build a six-lane bridge. The council went out to other councils, made the argument of why we can't handle this traffic in the city. So we've pretty well uh, have been able to negotiate what we've wanted. Patrick, you know about the cycling and all that, some real good amenities for the people in New West and not that massive traffic that we were going to get with the six-lane bridge. Right. Do we want to get into just the jobs of counselors just to yeah we're going to speak to that but i, I really appreciate introducing yourselves and, and why you run for council because for anybody who wants to go out there and, and criticize a city councillor, i have no time for that none of us are ever going to ind- agree 100 percent with any of your views i think that's impossible uh but the fact that you're there uh this is not exactly what i would call a lucrative financial position um <laughs> we're all laughing <laughs> <laughs> and and i see uh just as a resident how much you attend all of the city events all of the different causes that are in town because you're there to listen uh so i have a great deal of appreciation for your contribution although I'll admit I don't agree certainly with any every position that any one of you has, but I appreciate that, that you're there. And, and I'll have the same thing to say for anybody else who's running for election. It takes a lot of passion to step up and, and represent city council. So that's greatly appreciated. We're going to move on and help our listeners understand what a city council actually does. Now you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. You decide your own level of involvement. Well, I guess this is a case where we'll have to agree to disagree. I don't agree to that. Neither do I. Wrong. National debt. Wrong. Wrong. Advocate. Wrong. Without money, we lost. Wrong. Wrong. Very nice words, but happens to be wrong. You're listening to Multiple Offers, a real estate show. What can you affect for the residents? Because sometimes maybe expectations are outside of the scope of what city council can do. So, you know, there's a, some people think that we're limited as to what we can do because of the local government act. Um, but this council, um, team Cote council, we've been very creative. Uh, we take resolutions. When the government act doesn't suit us, we've gone to Victoria. Uh, we've gone to union of BC municipalities and we've, uh, gotten buy-in from other municipalities we're able to we have been able to facilitate some change in the local government act the most recent one was taking the uh, rental contracts out so there's a lot you can do if you really want to you can actually lobby senior levels of government just like we lobbied the uh, other municipalities about the Tula bridge there's a lot you can do uh, as a local government so what what do you uh, 
Patrick, let's direct this to you first. What do you wish people knew that falls outside of your authority as a city councillor? People say, Pat, couldn't you do this for me? Like, what's a common misconception that people think that maybe you could do that you certainly cannot? Yeah, sending me a tweet to complain that your garbage didn't pick up, didn't get picked up. <laughs> Does that happen? Is, is, it happens all the time. It's not the most effective way to get that problem solved, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, uh, a city councillor, we are ultimately executives of the city. We We direct policy, we manage the budget, we do those big things. We've got a, an operation of, you know, more than a thousand employees. We've got, you know, $200 million budget. And a lot of those, uh, those sort of day-to-day minor things, um, honestly, we're not the best people. You should, you should contact engineering and let and get that work. You know, there are ways to contact the staff who are doing that work. If you're not getting resolution, if you're not getting help, then come talk to city council and say that I didn't get, you know, I yeah, I, I tried the appropriate channels and I was unsuccessful. That, right? that that's I think a better thing, <laughs> a better way for council. And it's really difficult as a councillor, even myself, not to get involved at that day to day operation level because it, I don't think it's functional for an organization of any size when, when, um, when the executive types try to try to. Um, manage that day-to-day operation and not let the professional staff do their jobs. Yeah, I think it's important in any big business operation, which the city of New West is, although it's a small community, um, to respect the the hierarchy, you know, the systems of people report to different individuals who have a special knowledge of what's going on there. Uh, Jamie, what do you think about like, specifically council and housing? Do you think there's a limitation there where people expect a lot from you and what you can affect on housing? Or is there something that you want people to know that this is where council really can affect housing? Without getting too deep into it, because we have lots of questions for you later. But as a general stance, because I do want to clarify i'm hoping some of our listeners right now maybe aren't from new west and want to understand how they can select the right candidate when they're voting in their municipal election if it's back in mary's former community of north van or vancouver or burnaby or coquitlam what should they think that their counselor could do when they're standing up there at the podium and saying this is what i will do is it realistic for housing jamie i hope people expect a lot of us out of housing um Having said that, there is the proviso that there are certain powers we don't have, and we face that all the time. For example, we don't have the power to de- deny a building permit for a renovation, that we're, we're legally prohibited by the uh, by the Local Government Act. But having said that, it's important that your council not be complacent on issues, right? And, and if... Uh, if we, we play a tremendous role in advocacy. We meet with cabinet members. We meet with government officials. We took five motions to the Union of BC Municipalities, and they all passed. And, in fact, we actually have a formal strategy as our Team Cote City Council that we punch above our weight into Westminster. We're 1.5% of the provincial population, but I can tell you that we've been effective in having a lot right. more than 1.5% of the say in the province. Right. Hmm. I think we'll talk a bit more about some of that stuff, too. Chuck? This is a, one example. Uh, nobody was building uh, rentals in New Westminster, and residents were coming to us and saying they had nowhere to go when uh, uh, they were having to move out of the area. So uh, we got creative, and uh, we waived some legal fees. We waived some construction fees. Um, we gave some parking variances when they were in proximity of transit, and uh, we created a, a significant growth in, in rental apartments, which now other local governments are, are doing as well. I've certainly noticed that. Are you speaking to some of them that are in downtown New West? Correct. I feel I've noticed quite a few rental towers going up. That There's two, two big new ones that are getting yeah. close, I think. There's a thousand new dedicated purpose-built rental units being built in New Westminster. Uh, that is huge for our city. 
Um, it, it's for the city of our size. It is more per capita than any other city in the Lower Mainland is building. And that's because of policy the city has created that has provided incentives to developers to make, to make it to make it economically viable for them to build rental buildings. And uh, it's really important for New Westminster. Uh, 40, 45% of our population in New Westminster are renters, and there really hasn't been any new rental built across the region for the last decade. And so it's been, uh, so it's been important for us to make sure that we're bringing in new rental stock as we saw uh, vacancies drop below so 1% and stay below 1% for a long period of time. Right. I just want, you know, um, following up on that, I want to add that um, there's it, being a city council is multifaceted. There are things that you can do easily. There are things that are harder, take longer. There are things that require advo- advocacy with other levels of government. Um, one of the things that I think was is really amazing about our community is when I sat on the seniors committee. I think it was when I first got on. So say four years ago, uh, we started to hear at the table that a lot of seniors were getting renovation notices in their buildings. So four years ago, we started talking about. About this issue, an issue that has become a, a real problem in other communities. Now, luckily, um, the city of New West had put in some policy to affect change there, but we are also having very serious conversations uh, with our city staff about uh, additional policies that will protect people. And so being a city councillor doesn't mean just doing this one part of the job. It means doing that job, but also looking ahead. What are the things that are coming that we need to be dealing with now before they get here? The big big picture stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So and that's still part of something moving forward. Um, the next sort of term here is is still need rental. Even though we've added about a thousand units, it's still gonna be a challenge moving forward. It's still a challenge for people. I mean there even you know, there's a lot of people that will criticize the fact that a lot of the rental we're putting in is unaffordable, and that is true. But it is rental for some people, and it means that there's more there's more supply. And when there's more supply, it means that people can't charge as much as they'd like to because there's a lot of options. And so it's it's not a simple a- ans- answer. It's a very complex answer. Right. But it's something that we have to do the whole spectrum, just not one end or the other. And that's a problem that needs a regional solution. And this is where the advocacy and working with our partners across the region are important. New Westminster could put in 30,000 rental units. It doesn't impact fundamentally the economics of the region's rental market. Right. New, you know, for... Uh, Vancouver to build 10,000 rental units. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a residential real estate agent who deals mostly with, with purchases, when I hear that, what I'm, what I'm noticing is when, when you approve to build a 100-unit condo tower that goes for sale, a large portion of those units typically are not occupied by owner-occupiers in the first few years. That's just status quo. That's the process of how it goes. But not necessarily all of them are rented out, mm-hmm. right? So uh, what you're doing by having a dedicated rental structure is that you're you're certainly you're committing to that rental stock being there for the long term. So it does make more of an impact, I think, on affecting rental versus adding condos that are uh, you know strata owned. Can I just touch on one other thing that we were leaders on, and that's uh, family-friendly housing. And so we actually met with the development community, and we said, look, we're going to start to mandate three-bedroom units. Uh, there was a bit of pushback at the beginning. Uh, council consulted. Uh, we went ahead and did it. Um, and the uh, industry was actually quite appreciative now. They're, they realized that these places are still selling just as well, in some cases better. Great. And I want to go back to one thing, Uh, Jamie, you had mentioned uh, that you can't deny a renovation 
application. And so again, speaking to our broad audience, not just in New West, and they say, well, what can a council do? I think it's important and I don't fully understand the the role of council, but I do realize that you are not lawmakers. You don't sit there in council chamber and say, I'm going to decide that my vote is just going to change the rules. Now, you may have an effect on voting as a collective to change bylaws and change the way things are done at the city. But at the time that a demolition application comes or the reason why you brought in the heritage conservation area is that you had to act within the rules that existed. You have to respect the bylaws that are in place is that a fair statement can you can you add to that can you tell me i'm wrong (laughs) there are times every single week where i wish i had the power to change the local government act or or to introduce some provincial policy but you know there have been some changes for example the government has provided for rental zoning now, right? But it's going to take us a little while to plug into that and to work. I think one of the challenges is we're a city of 70,000 people and being part of Greater Vancouver, sometimes our citizens think we can do everything Vancouver can, but they have their own (laughs) charter. They have a separate law. They can do a lot of things. And I look at them quite enviously sometimes and say, gee, I wish I could do that. But, you know, what I'll say about our council is that to deal with those limitations, uh, You don't need to have fatalism about it. Sometimes you can come up with creative ideas. You can find solutions that are permissible within the Act. And so, for example, we have a ban on stratification in Westminster, which means you cannot stratify an existing rental building. Um, If someone were to just sort of look at the Act and say, well, we have limits, we can't control anything about housing in that way, that never would have happened, right? We also have limits on redevelopment of apartments, which which is a big part of the reason why we haven't had demo evictions in New Westminster, because we try to reach those kinds of creative solutions. So there is room, um, but you have to be clever, you have to think, and we have to have some patience to address those issues. And I think that's something that the council does really well, is is really look at a problem and have some determination to try to find some way to make it better, even with the limitations that we have. We're, we're not lawmakers in provincial law. We do lobby. But we, uh, we um, have brought in policy to prevent the lawbreakers. And that's the, uh, the landlord that comes in, has really no intention of doing a major renovation, tells his tenants that they have to move out because he's doing a renovation, and then ends up just uh, re-renting that place for sometimes two, three times the rent. So what we've done through our social planning department is we've created policy, and we communicate out to renters uh, as far and wide as we can to ensure them of what their rights are, that there is no renovation without a permit in place. So we're trying to mitigate that impact of uh, some less scrupulous landlords trying to get people out just simply to raise the rents. Yeah, I mean, our role, uh, the the most boring word in local government is policy. (laughs) Uh, But policy matters. I mean, things like not knocking down affordable rental to put up condo buildings, that's a policy decision the city made. I think what we do really effectively in New Westminster, we have great staff. We, uh, as a council, we say, look, we've got a problem. We we need to see what policy triggers we have to fix this problem. And we give our staff the power to come to us with better policy ideas. And then we, you know, we put those into action. Fantastic. Well, thanks for educating us on that. We are going to move on to speaking specifically to housing in New Westminster. We have three core categories. You want to speak to homeowners, housing-related city infrastructure, and, and renters will be our third segment. So as far as representing homeowners, I want to speak first to policy. <laughs> uh, I'm not well, sure I like the way you said that. <laughs> well, 
policy or planning. So, so what, what comes top of mind for me, and I hear a lot from people in the community, is the, is the OCP, the official community plan. There was a lot of time that went into that, a lot of community consultation, and it, it, it reached its final decision. Uh, however that came to, and I wasn't privy to all of it, I went to a number of the, the different consultations and contributed my thoughts. If you ever look at the record and every time they run a news story on the OCP, that's me and my daughter in the picture <laughs> standing there with Lynn. So I was there once, at least. There's photographic evidence. Uh, I, I, did, I did give you the heads up before we recorded today. There was an article in the summer that said, should we be revisiting the OCP? Was it a little bit too little, too late? Where you know, because the market for real estate shifted so drastically during the consultation process. Do you think, in your next term, if you're to be reelected, reelected, that there's something you want to do to reshape the OCP? Um, I think revisit is is the word I would use. Um, an official community plan is a living document, right? It is it is something that is always under review and something we're always evaluating. Um, in the OCP, uh, people concentrate, spend most of their energy looking at the land use plan in the official community plan. And the other 200 pages of the OCP don't get as much attention, but that's where the important goals of the city and the vision of the city are. The land use plan is just one thing that's there to support those goals and visions. I think the goals and visions that we spent three years talking with this city are still valid today. Um, but we do need to, we constantly need to be looking back at the land use plan to decide whether those goals and visions are going to be met um, it, it, in light of changing economics. And the changing economics are always happening. So for me, who doesn't fully understand, can you change the land use plan on an OCP? Uh, we, Yeah, ab- I mean, absolutely. Those are the things that we can, we can revisit when we go forward. I think... Um, I think the OCP process was a great process for the city. We put a lot of time into it. And we got a ton of public engagement. Was it? Did it come out making everybody happy? Of course not. But I think that I feel like we made some good changes. I would like to see us to. I would have liked to see us be a bit more aggressive around townhomes um, and some small lot development. But not all my colle- colleagues would have agreed with that, and the community may not have agreed with that. So I think we we sort of found a middle ground that we could move forward with. But okay, absolutely, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we need I want to hit you with a bit of a harder question sure. then. If you yeah. think that townhouse maybe should have been looked at a little more closely, or your, whatever your language was 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 good there, Mary. Yeah. As you're running for re-election, what would you offer that people that you could do? that you will do to address that. I would actually like to bring that back to the table. I would like us to look at more opportunities for townhomes. I would like us to look, have a conversation around co-housing, lock-off units. Like there's lots of other things that we can still be uh, researching, investigating that we didn't in the, in that original uh, work. It's not, it's um, when you're talking about land use planning, it doesn't ever stop. It's not like, okay, we did the OCP and now we're finished with that. It's sort of an organic document that moves forward and gets looked at and changed and readdressed all the time. That's my personal opinion of how we should be using that kind of work. So uh, the OCP is uh, it's mandated by law, but uh, it's supposed to be every 10 years. Sometimes it kind of lapses. But <laughs> the idea of the OCP is to give some stability to uh, people outside the community or people that want to build in the community. Um, having said that, um, many of our uh, rezonings, when somebody comes to the city and says, hey, I have a really creative idea that is going to provide some housing in this neighborhood, and the city goes forward with it, everyone has the right to bring that position to council. They, you can't deny them that. If council approves it, 
then uh, the first thing that has to be done, of course, is, a, is an OCP change. And so this is very common practice. The OCP is sort of your generic, uh, this is the heartbeat of the city for the next 10 years, but... Um, we are open to suggestions, and that's how Chuck's to, getting that's how excited. He's heading, hitting the table. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys, it's election season. So is that is that in, that's in form of just a revision to the document, um, or just sort of like how does it? How do you change it? It completely uh, opens the OCP for that specific area in question. So if somebody came with a really large area, mm-hmm. obviously you'd have to change the OCP. You couldn't just automatically go there and build it. You would have to go through an OCP amendment. We do it all the time. Okay. Uh, Jamie, you had something to add? Yeah, I would invite you and the listeners to be part of the process that follows up from this because along with the OCP, we have neighborhood area plans. And the next neighborhood area plan to be developed is in Sapperton. Oh, nice. Uh, We have a downtown area plan that was adopted before the OCP, and that's where we can really drill down to neighborhood and even drill down by street and talk about what we really want to see as refinements to that plan. Mm -hmm. Um, I live in a townhouse. I love townhouses. I think it's a great form of living. And in Greater Vancouver, quite honestly, Honestly, I, me and my wife could afford a house, but we may never take a vacation again if we do. So, all three, all three well, hosts well, of the show are, live in townhouses. Yeah, we do all live in townhouses, but we consider ourselves the lucky few. <laughs> yes, because I, supply is uh, is very very low. Patrick, I I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was identified all through the OCP process. Is that missing middle housing form was a was something that was needed on this side of the river? There's a lot of it, obviously, on the Queensboro part of New Westminster, but on this side of the river, it's something that we need more of. Um, and we are going through that process right now in the city as part of our implementation of the OCP. Uh, we are, our staff is looking at the economics of these small townhouse developments and deciding, well, is it even possible right now to build them? The way that the economics of, of land prices in the region has shifted in the last four years. Um, it's okay to put together a plan and say, you know, people should be building townhouses on this block. But if someone, look, if a builder looks at that and says, I can't make any money building townhouses on this block, or I'm going to build townhouses, and they're going to cost $1.5 million each, mm-hmm. then that's not solving the problem that we're trying to solve. So that's why the OCP, we have to continually be reviewing what, what is possible and what can be built in the city so that we're making sure we're building the right kind of housing. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I want to speak to the feedback I get as a realtor working with, with folks. And, and Jer- Jeremy and I are big advocates for New West, and we typically want to work with people who want to work, live in New West. Unfortunately, we often have to completely bypass New West as an option for a lot of families. And the reason being is that we, I just mentioned townhouse supply is very, very low. And then we speak to well, what could be coming in the future and we show them the land use uh, map on the OCP. And the majority of that is designated on main arterial streets of New West. Mm-hmm. Why is it, because I've been asked this question a lot of times, why is it that that came through, that, that the townhouse option was not provided in, in family-friendly residential neighborhoods where it's like, sure, you can have a townhouse. We'd love you to be a part of our community as long as you live on 6th or 8th mm-hmm. or 10th. Uh, why not the main streets? What, or why only the main streets? What happened? Well, it was tough. Uh, the community told us what they wanted and they wanted that I would say that uh, we got a lot of resistance from single family neighborhoods that did not want to see their neighborhoods change. They appreciate the housing challenges. And and don't forget, when we were having this conversation, it was four years ago, and the housing market has changed a lot. But we had to find a place where we could get this work done, but also have the community support it. 
Do I wish that we had been more aggressive in townhomes in single-family neighborhoods? I do. Will I continue to support that? Absolutely. So I'm going to go on record because I've been on the show already and said before that I was disappointed, that I I have faith in all of you that you understand our community, and I feel like you didn't take a strong enough leadership role and say, I hear you citizens, you say you don't want this. I know better. It's like being a parent and standing up and your kid says, I hate you. I know better. (laughs) I'm doing this because I love you. Okay, so what... What, what do we do now? But, well, in the context of a three-year-long community consultation, that's difficult to do. We really, I mean, honestly, people, we, we, we have a responsibility both to the regional growth strategy and to building the housing that we think the, new, the city needs. But we also have a responsibility to listen to the residents and understand that we need to balance what people actually, what, what our people who live in this city need. So um, I do think that the biggest... At the end of the OCP process, we did have a discussion about townhouses. That was actually the center of the discussion at the final point. And the discussion was, we need to make sure that when townhouses are getting built, we, they are getting built. And we are, and we in the implementation, we built in something that said, if we're not getting enough built or it's not happening, we need to revisit this. It's been identified just because the economics were already shifting right at the end of the OCP process. Okay. The, the last thing I'd want to do is tell the constituent that I know better. And, uh, you know, we did listen. Um, this is the most aggressive uh, OCP that um, I've ever seen in the city. And even going back into history, this is probably the most aggressive OCP. Um, so I think we have come a long way. Look at other communities that aren't engaging in that, that are literally keeping these large single-family lots uh, with large uh, monster homes on them, so, or non-contextual homes. So I think we're very aggressive, but this is the beginning. And, uh, you know, Team Cote has identified that there is an issue with uh, council, with uh, the city, with affordability. It's not so much a housing crisis, it's an affordability crisis. And as was said earlier, the more that you develop uh, in affordable units, uh, the more competitive competitive the price uh, point of those is. I'm going to push back a, a little bit on you on that because... <laughs> <laughs> here we go. That's why we're here. <laughs> it, it's... it's uh, Look, you got to lead with the community, not against the community, right? And and I think the council deserves credit that this isn't a council that simply sits back and tests the winds. It, this is a council that goes out and says what we think, what is a vision, what we think is the best for this city. At the end of the day, we're democratic representatives, and it's important that, that we're a group that is willing to go out there with our ideas and make some arguments, but it's also important at the end of the day that we listen. But I'll tell you, with the changes in the OCP, we're already seeing a dramatic increase. We're seeing applications, we're seeing properties bought with identification around the SkyTrain stations and the residential uh, increases in in uh, the downtown. And don't forget that all of those plan to have townhouses on the ground floors or commercial on the ground floors. There's going to be a dramatic change in housing in New Westminster, more dramatic than you're seeing in any other community as part of a deliberate plan. And um, you know, there was a survey, single-family homeowners. Guess guess who likes single-family neighborhoods? Single-family <laughs> homeowners do. Guess who likes denser neighborhoods? People who live in denser neighborhoods sure. do. And, and people that are voting are represent. Do people actually showing up and with the voice are potentially these people from these detached houses? And we might see a shift in this. We're adding thousands of units, multifamily units, condo buildings. Um, if, if they show up to vote... Um, they actually, you know, contact counts, contact the city, make these voices heard. Um, we might see that shift as well. I do want to say that conversation that happened at the council table uh, was not necessarily all on the same. We weren't all on the same page on this. <laughs> there was a significant amount of conversation during the workshops, you know, in council. 
because we are hearing different things from different parts of the community and we've all brought different opinions about about how to manage that part of the land use plan. I think that um, the great thing about this council is we did manage to have some significant disagreements about some of how that land use plan should look, uh, but we managed to figure out a collaborative uh, and and uh, we managed to agree upon a, a compromise, I guess, everybody compromised, and we agreed on a plan that we could go forward with recognizing it's a living document and we are going to be able to make changes as we need to to meet those goals of the OCP. Okay. Well, thank you for your contribution on that. We're going to uh, move along. Can I add one, one thing? Fine. So, one final thought. <laughs> um, just because I think it's important and it's something that we deal with as realtors on a regular basis um, is the high rises with the townhouses attached to them. The struggle that we have is that their maintenance fees are usually astronomical because they're paying for all these common areas and everything. So it's great. Any townhouse is great right now. So if it's attached to a high rise, that's awesome. We need them. Um, but actual, you know, purpose built townhome complexes. Uh, I think it's, it's a better solution. And row homes. We row just homes. do not have yeah. any row homes. In this, and big that's fan not a, of row homes. Yeah. That's big, just big not fans. a common <laughs> form in, Va- in Vancouver in the lower mainland at all. And I think it's a really important step, a piece that we're missing in our, housing selection outside of the Queensboro area again where there are good row homes. Okay, well, I'm trying to move on, Pat, okay. but tell me, <laughs> if you are re-elected, what can you do to help bring more row homes? Um, again, this is this is the policy work that staff is doing right now to figure out what the economics are to get these things built. We've identified areas where we would, where it would be easy for us to approve building them, um, but we have to understand uh, within the limits of what we're allowing people to build, can builders actually make money building these things and can they make these things exist? Everybody's got to make money. Okay. Um, we're going to move on, and we'll keep this somewhat brief, but it is a question that we heard from a couple of different people as we were gathering questions for the show today. Okay, So uh, to speak to it briefly, uh, going forward in the future, as you sit in council chambers, if you're to be reelected, what can you do to hold developers accountable for promises that they make? So some examples that we've heard from our listeners are, for example, in Queensboro, when Aragon developed Port Royal. Anybody who walked in the sales center was told and promised of a pedestrian crossing. I know that you knew that was never a guarantee. How do we hold account- developers accountability accountable for making those promises? Same in Victoria Hill. They promised a lot of commercial space. Now, those are master planned communities that were developed over a decade. Okay, so again, those are, those are big examples, but there are small examples. Uh, floor is open to you. Let's keep it quick. Let's hear from you. You know... Um what promises that a promoter makes is, is something that is outside of our purview. We don't hear about it until after the fact. I hear from people that said, those railways were supposed to be gone in two years. You know, there's four trains <laughs> I, I running through New West. That's a new one. Have yeah, we have heard that. And so, when are we getting rid of those things? You know, I, I think there needs to be, uh, you know, I think there needs to be a more ethical approach when people are selling that they, you know, just trying to make the sale and say anything that you can to make that sale. It's unfortunate. I think people should be aware and they should say to the realtor, put this in writing. Tell me in writing that you are going to promote this, and how are you going to put these 10 businesses in here? And how are these railways leaving and why? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question for the real estate industry, frankly. I'll push back at you on that one. <laughs> I was going to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bring it, bring I mean, it, bring I mean, it. Yeah, no, there are hey, people... You can go listen to our episode on buying new development. We are not <laughs> yeah. in favor of those not, sales centers. Not there a, there, not are, a people, there <laughs> are people who bought apartments in the Quayside who were told that rail yard is going away within five years. That's shocking. There are people right now in um, the Glenbrook area who are being told there's big developments happening in Glenbrook Ravine. I don't know where these rumors are coming from. That's crazy. 
But I don't know if it's my role as a city councillor is to stop those, to hunt down and stop rumours. It's, it's, it's difficult when no plan comes to city council. All I can talk to is plans that come to me, and I haven't seen anything like and that. And unless that, that, like, say, Victoria Hill, per se, was, um, unless that was part of the development application. Was it part of the rendering that there's commercial space there? No. I'm seeing Chuck well, shake the, his head. There were some commercial spaces, but I didn't think that, that they had the capacity for 10, but um, they have a capacity for a few. And uh, from what I hear is they struggle because of the proximity of those commercial spaces. Right. So, so there's the economics of it, right? But for uh, the listeners who have asked the question, if they were to have that rendering and suggest that all this commercial space was coming and city council approved that rendering, and sorry, this may not have been the case. I may not be speaking to the facts, but if that were the case, is there something that you would look to try to do to contribute in the future in your role as councillor to, to hold these developers if they make a, if there's a rendering, a drawing that says this is coming? Oh, that's a that's a really tough question because misinformation happens all the time everywhere for different reasons. Either someone doesn't understand what's being said to them or they would prefer to hear something different or someone is telling somebody something in order to, you know, improve their sales um, prospects. We do get stories uh, as counselors from residents all the time that are completely outlandish. Um, and it's very difficult to know how do you track that down, determine if it is actually true, and then what is the punishment? I'm not sure how where city council's role is in there. I mean, I suppose all of us know at the city council table that there are developers that we like to work with, and there are developers that maybe we're not so happy to work with. Well, you want to name any names, no, Mary? No, not naming, <laughs> definitely not naming any names, but you, but you do hear those things. And you eventually get tired of those kind of problems following particular businesses. And I'm not sure what other solution there is for city council to shut um, those kinds of things down. People have to really do their homework and find out exactly what it is um, that's true or not true in their neighborhood. But it's a, it's a it's a big problem. I totally hear that. So on this particular one, uh, Victoria Hill, uh, hypothetically, uh, let's say that that let's say that that was in the plan, uh, 10 commercial spaces, and now there's maybe three or four. Um, once it's passed, and it's approved by council, um, there's nothing that binds us to force the builder to build those units. Sometimes the market changes and the builder decides that they're going to pull back. So there are all, there are all sorts of market, but there's nothing in the Local Government Act that gives us an authority to actually mandate the completion of those projects. Sometimes they can just leave a, a hole in the ground. Well, we would make them cover it, but sometimes they literally will not, will not build. And there's nothing that we can force them to actually build what's on that plan. Yeah, a good example is the retail plan for next to Port Royal in Queensboro. Um, there is a development there that is planned to bring some retail in the Port Royal area. And, you know, those plans are approved by the city and they're, and they're working through the process. But we can't force a developer to build that building today. You know, they own that piece of land. And right. You, gave, you gave them the approval, the right to do it, but that's their prerogative if they proceed. Exactly. And, I, and, and you know, we desperately need some retail, just a little bit of corner retail in that Port Royal neighborhood. And it's hard to get it, hard to get them to build. <laughs> Just some quick advice for your listeners. Um, use a local real estate agent. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, as, boy. That's not just a plug for you guys, but the, the, sa the, sales, the sales centers are often people are ma making sales who don't know the community. 
um, the sales centers result in a certain number of sales to people who are not going to be occupants, which is a problem for us. If we approve a high-rise downtown, we imagine it'll be occupied and there'll be people living there and shopping in the area and so on. But a local real estate agent is a person who, who will know the neighborhood, know what plans are for the area who can tell you realistically what the experience is going to be like if you buy a property yeah. so go local and take that rendering Good advice, counselor. take that <laughs> rendering with a grain of salt because it's just a pretty picture um that's they're selling you space right just air for it right now <laughs> it may have even been a preliminary drawing exactly it didn't actually, that's actually yeah. reflect the final plan. unless council can hold them to potentially as a solution uh, you know the the part of the planning application is let's see your marketing materials, the renderings, and and you're only able to advertise what you've approved to us. And if there are revisions for things, it goes through that process. Uh, just spitballing, but I know there's a there's a lot of there's a big process here for getting all those changes. But anyway, okay, I have a very personal question I want to ask you guys. It's just this is my own personal experience with something. Boxers. <laughs> it's not personal to you. It's it's, it's a very boxer briefs. No, we are not going there. I've. I've I told the listeners I was going to keep my personal opinions out of this, but this is my observation as a real estate agent and understanding the zoning bylaws in New West. And I've, I've somewhat warned you that this is a question I have for you. So floor space ratio, density for single detached lots. If the listeners don't understand, every single family lot has a maximum size house you can build, and it's a percentage of the total lot size. What I also notice is that New West's floor space ratio is smaller than most of the surrounding communities. Now, that is not what I'm trying to change here. It's typically 50% of lot size for New West. Uh, That is if that house is built partly below ground or above. It's the same regardless. My thought is I saw a beautiful brand new house come up a couple years ago in one of our single family neighborhoods, and the exterior looked a perfect fit for the neighborhood. The house obviously is not too big. That's the objective. But I thought to myself, here's a brand new house, tasteful, all the rest of it. It should have an eight foot dugout basement with a suite underneath. That doesn't change the aesthetic to the community at all to me. I think it's a very reasonable solution. Visually, it's fine. We're adding that suite. I mean, they had the option to put a suite in anyway, um, but then they would have exceeded their floor space ratio. So um, now I did share my feedback with uh, the, the mayor at the time, Mr. Cote, and he said, well, the bylaws are as such is what they are. So my question to you as an individual, as a resident, is is that something you would entertain as as revising the bylaws to allow something like that where the aesthetic is maintained in the community, but we can increase the option for the size of the house? I've actually brought this up at council because... Um in one of the most strictly regulated cities in the world, in London, in central London, has very strict height limits, um, very low height limits, but they allow underground. They've decided to allow underground. And I read about one property that, believe it or not, had 12 levels underground. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, and, and it was not an apartment building. It was someone who was quite well off and had a car collection and all kinds of things. But the experience <laughs> from the street was still an experience of a nice house, a nice neighborhood, a visible skyline, and all those kinds of things. Okay, I'm going to cut you off. You get it. Are you going to advocate for this? I've already started advocating for it. And the other thing to talk about is usable floor space. If you can own a nice heritage home, you don't want to destroy the heritage home, but you've got sloping attic walls that limit the use of your house, we need to talk about usable floor space as well. Hmm. Um, Yes, in the context of housing diversity. 
I mean, I don't want I don't want us just to uh, just blanket increase FSR so that houses get bigger and bigger. I think that the most the biggest pressing issue in our city is housing diversity, having a different variety of sizes of housing. So I am I am comfortable with uh, looking at FSR if it includes secondary suites, if it includes laneway houses, if it includes inc- uh, um, duplexes. Uh, triplexes and that type of housing diversity increases and ultimately this is what we're going to have to do if we're going to want to get row houses and townhouses to build um absolutely i completely agree i think that that is the the direction that the city needs to go i think um the place where we can start affecting affecting some change there is with staff and to make sure that staff understands that they can bring that kind of stuff to us or that they can advocate with the applicant that council is likely to consider this. Let's work it's, work on something different. And I think sometimes if staff feel that there's a lot of limitations, um, that they're quite boxed in, they don't bring that forward. And I think it's our role as councillors to make sure that staff know that we are open to that kind of work. Well, FSR is a significant uh, change. It's not just um, you know uh, something that can be triggered. It, it's a major change. Uh, to change an FSR, you can only change into an upper zoning. We had a house in Queensboro that had added on 1,100 square feet. Well, the only zoning they could go into to not have to tear down their addition was a hotel zoning. So they ended up having to tear it down. So um, FSR is a very important issue. It changes because of t- topography in New Westminster. There are some basement suites that have 12-foot high ceilings, depending on uh, the topography. So um, it is it is a challenge. I agree with uh, Councillor Johnstone. Um, you know, laneway housing to look at the FSR on that and to look at the FSR for uh, uh, secondary suites or, or at least uh, additional rental properties. And I, and I want to add, there is complexity to FSR. I mean, we have to consider several other things. Lot coverage, because lot coverage impacts how the city plans the drainage of the city. If you have all your lot cover, we have to build our sewers bigger to accommodate drainage. Uh, tree cover. Um, green space cover. We so so FSR can exist within within this context, but but you need to think about all the having a tree bylaw. To me, was one of the most important changes <laughs> the city made in order to allow us to increase FSR and building and building flexibility on lots while not losing that green space. Okay, I want to drill down on this then as an election item. So, what can you do in the next term? You're 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 agreeing with me that we want to look for options to do this, but Jamie makes the point: digging down doesn't affect the street facade changing the fsr i understand chuck is incredibly complicated but you have you have a four-year term ahead of you do you want to try to open up something to to actually change the zoning bylaws where you can say it's 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 like the west end of new west has a different zoning bylaw where you have to have your second level is 80 percent of your first and the the intent behind that was that you, you couldn't build an ugly box big big box right so why aren't we doing something like that for the rest of the community that says you can build underground you can build your portion above and your portion below so that is baked into the implementation of the OCP. So when I talked earlier about um, our staff are doing economic analysis of different housing types and how they can actually be built and what's actually practical, that is baked right into that. It, part of that discussion is how can we adjust FSR or do we have to adjust FSR in order to allow laneway houses or duplexes or triplexes or these other forms. That is an ongoing process that is happening in the city. Okay. Do need to kind of close the issue, but I'm going to just push back a little bit. I liked the concept of laneway housing. I also like the concept of having a yard. 
<laughs> and if you can build a tasteful house on the outside with a very suitable suite below, and you still have a yard, which apparently reduces lot coverage and helps with drainage and maintaining trees, Councillor Johnstone, that to me is a better fit. I, I actually don't love the concept of covering a single family lot with structures. I'd rather see it done tastefully with, with space below ground. But I understand it's outside the limit of what we can do today. Can I just say something? Yeah. The thing is, is you already can. You can you can build a complete suite downstairs and a house on top and a laneway house. I understand that, but you still have to fit within today's current 50% right. FSR. What I'm saying is 50% above ground or 45% above ground. It's still a very suitable size house for the lot. And then you allow them to also put that suite below. As it long does, as it's not detracting from the neighborhood. Precisely. Yeah. Right? I'd, I'd rather see that than a 45% FSR house on the lot plus a laneway house and garage behind and then plus and that being it. I, I just, I'd rather see it underneath. I mean, I'm, I'm getting very personal on this, but you're saying that you're looking for options and I am, I'm wondering with the re-election what you would actually You're saying you hear this and you understand the need. What can you actually do during your next four years? We have to direct staff to bring that back to us, to go and do the work and bring us back options that we can either approve or not approve. But uh, we've had these conversations. Uh, The conversation, as Patrick said, is in the works, but we have to be more directive and say we want to hear back on what are these options around FSR. So if somebody had an application to build on their property, you're saying it's not as black and white if if they do get sort of stonewalled, that's uh, you know part of the application process. Um, does, I mean, does it have to? Is that so? It has to go to public hearing, or is it something that you can actually? We're talking variance. <laughs> well, yeah, you're getting into this weird with thing. FSR, you can't unless you actually change the entire zoning. There has to be a zoning on the shelf that fits that FSR. Maybe that's... you bring up some good points. I mean, some people may maybe we can have staff say, "Look, at this person doesn't want to do a laneway house, mm-hmm. but wants that same density of the laneway house. What can we do to to accommodate that? It might be odd because uh, you might." have a house structure and then an underground part that actually extends beyond the house but you know what that doesn't mean it's not doable right mm-hmm. jamie 12 stories underground <laughs> we can do a story and a half maybe so no that's an interesting point and i think we should have a look at that all right i appreciate your feedback on addressing a lot around uh, development planning uh let's try to sort of get through this housing related infrastructure questions we've received from our listeners are related to that as we talk about increasing density and population and building a lot of new structures people worry about the new towers on the key and how all the vehicles are going to get in and out and park and what does that mean uh what does that mean for sewer systems patrick you mentioned that with single family lots with drainage and again uptown we're talking about development people worry about that so let's talk talk about as we add a lot of housing how does the city manage its infrastructure especially because we do have very very old systems being a very old city when you talk about uh, housing on the key at one time there were 13 towers going up on the key Um, the city purchased the one uh, project westminster pier uh, eliminated all those towers built pier park and the second is the Larco site that had, I believe, another seven going in there and uh, literally weren't delaying we actually down zoned them and uh, we were expecting to go to court and we were expecting to be sued because they gave us a huge amenity for that density before I was on council. And so now we have two towers there. So we've done some creative stuff by uh, taking away some of that density. But we've also created a shortage of some of the housing that was going to be provided by that density. And so that's another reason to look at other areas to put that housing. Patrick? Um, the official community plan Ultimately, that's its goal. The official community plan puts the city's growth 
uh, into context, uh, or the regional growth into the context in our cities. So uh, that sort of directs staff about what the city is going to look like 20 years down the road. So we were assured that we we're building the right infrastructure to accommodate the growth in the areas where we're growing it. That ultimately is one of the goals of the official community plan, making growth predictable so that we can build the infrastructure we need to accommodate that growth. Uh, when it comes to traffic and car ownership, especially downtown, you know, downtown car ownership is down to like 0.7 vehicles per suite. Um, building density on SkyTrain lines is not just the city's plan, it is the regional plan, and it is working. The only way we can address uh, uh, growing population in the region, well, there's two ways we can do it. We can build freeways, which will increasingly be packed with traffic, or we can give people the alternative to live. Sure. So we're addressing the concern. The concern is is a lot of vehicle traffic trying to get in and out of Keyside Drive. And so this isn't necessarily my view. It's just what I hear from a lot of people, right? So do you have a specific response to that? I guess part of it you're saying is there will be fewer cars than maybe people expect. Is that what you're saying? I think that the growth that's happening down there will result in it will have less vehicles than people expect. Mm-hmm. because And that, that's not just uh, speculation. That is what we are seeing right now downtown. We see, we see that too in some of the buildings actually around the SkyTrain stations. Yeah. It's... The, the cost for a parking space is actually lower if you, someone wants to rent one in their building um, because US there's Finster less people that have leads the region in alternative mode share. We are, no other city in the lower mainland uses transit as much as New Westminster residents do. We have the lowest car ownership per capita of any city in the lower mainland. So specifically then to this concern of the towers coming in on the key and there's only a few sort of routes in and out of the key across yeah. the tracks there. Are we saying that we don't think there's going to be too many cars or that you've got a plan that you're planning that's in place through the, the, the approval of this construction will accommodate your projections? Yeah, unfortunately, I think the construction that's going on right now is causing more impact <laughs> than actually the result of, after, of what will be there after the construction. Uh, the intersection at Begbie will be reconfigured as that development happens. So that's going to help the flow on that side. Okay. Um, we are also doing improvements on the McInnes overpass, but more importantly, we're creating better pedestrian connections across. Okay, and cool. that's going to help move people. So uh, going forward then in your next term, if you were to be reelected, Jamie, and people have this question around, are you addressing infrastructure concerns with new housing development? Do you, do you think that something needs to be done differently? Or are you telling the constituents that you are taking this into account when you look at development applications? We are taking it into account too. One of the things our council did was increase development cost charges, not necessarily a popular position in your business, but but to really look at it, we had the second lowest development cost charges in the entire lower mainland. In a rapidly growing city with lots of development, that just didn't make sense, right? We're now at the middle. We raised it, to, but we only raised it to the middle of the pack. Um, so we also created a community amenities program, which didn't exist at all before it. I remember uh, being an upset resident when a, a new tower went in on Royal Avenue and the community amenity was a bench on the sidewalk. Right. But the bench was put on 10th Street, so the bench ran down the hill just like the hill did. And <laughs> it was it was unusable. So they built a platform for the bench and then people were falling off the platform because the, the bench was on a hill. So so those are sig- really significant changes we made for the community to try to benefit. But I'll be honest, if I had one wish, the wish I would have is that approvals don't last forever. Um, it, it is painful when you're a councillor and something was approved 20 or 30 years ago and you think it was a mistake and you have to deal with it today. But in terms of traffic, look, I took a tour of some of the buildings that were built on the SkyTrain. One of them has 
parking lots that are almost empty in that building at any time of day. Um, so the strategy of the densification around the SkyTrain stations is actually making a real difference. And, you know, it's not as if, though, if there are 50 more cars in the community, that those communities are all going to go on one street at the exact same time of the day and they'll sit there and block everybody. But but the reality is we're doing a heck of a lot of work uh, making this community as transportation diverse as possible. And can I? And it's do, is it okay if I jump in? Because I I'm sorry I do have to run we're, off. Okay. To, we're going to lose Mary here. It's one of my the challenges of being on councils. I also work, so I have okay. to run off to work. But I just last wanna, last words last from comment Mary. for me is um, <laughs> Keyside. So I have spent uh, a couple of days in the last two weeks doing some door knocking and walking along the boardwalk. And you're right, traffic is what I've heard from most people. And the traffic is not great now. And I think the challenge is, is that people are really worried about what's going to happen when those buildings are in place. So they're, they're, it's more of this anticipation of problems. And I, I think, unfortunately, they haven't seen some of the new intersections that will be created, some of the new traffic patterns that will be created. I think that I understand the angst that they have around it, but we haven't finished the job. Um, and I think the other role of council is that we need to keep checking in. Like what, in six months or in a year after those buildings are up and people are in them, what does it look like? What's happening down there? Um, so it's not it's not something we can solve today. It's something that we've done a lot of planning for. We need to figure out what it's going to look like when it actually is in place. Is it true that there will be less uh, cars in some of those buildings. I believe so, but we have to get there. So I appreciate people's concerns, but I think they need to know that we have done a lot of planning around traffic. And I very quickly want to thank you for inviting us to be here. I, I really appreciate this conversation. I think you have a lot to add to the conversation and, and it would be great if you gave us more input throughout the term. Well, that's very much appreciated. Mary, thanks for joining us yeah, today. Uh, you do get your last word before you depart. So if there's oh, anything else, word? any well, that's your last word on housing infrastructure. Uh, we did have our other category of renters, but I think we did oh, yeah. speak to that mostly as we opened the show today. So yeah. I think you've had an opportunity to share your thoughts on that. But anything else that you thought maybe we've got the listeners listening right now, is there anything else you want them to know uh, about your, your prospects for re-election here? Uh, what I want them to do is go out and vote. Um, I think that it's really important that people have this, have a say, uh, try to figure out who to vote for, educate yourself, ask your friends, look at the paper, whatever is required, but get out there and have, have your say, make sure that your vote counts because we don't get enough people out. And it's really important that the community engages with uh, this process. So really, that's all I, I would add at this point. Great. Well, thank you, thank Mary. You. And in our, our show, we always have show notes. And we will yeah. uh, link to whatever feedback channel you choose where if people want to follow up with you sure. and communicate with you, they'll be able to reach yeah, you. Yeah, I have so. a website that people can go and have a look at, too. Awesome. We'll put that in our show notes so people can find that there and get a hold of you if they'd like to. So thank again, you. thanks for joining us. Thanks. thanks. So again, a big thank you to Mary. Uh, we're happy to get her out on time to get off to her, her job. Uh, speaking uh, to infrastructure related to housing development, we haven't heard from Chuck yet. 
Thanks. Uh, you know, there was a time where, uh, you know, we demanded uh, significantly more parking uh, for development, which uh, adds a huge cost to those development and uh, creates a, a, an issue with affordability. Um, we did some analysis and uh, found out in those uh, underground parkades, you could roll a bowling ball down there and not hit a car, which tells you that people living in proximity of a good transit system will use that transit system. We've now modeled that all around the SkyTrain stations, and that's the same model we're using for the new uh, project down on the waterfront. And remember, we're going from seven towers to two, uh, so that there will actually be fewer vehicles or fewer people living down there. When it comes to uh, amenities, um, you know, uh, when I first got on council and they were building this tower over to SkyTrain station, I go, where's the amenity? And the planner that's no longer with us anymore said, the development's the amenity. And so I said, you know what, then don't develop it. Let's wait until there's a desire to build in our city, and then let's make sure that we maximize what's returned to the people of the city. We do that now, and uh, we're in a market that is really developing. We're getting good amenities and good public art for the city. We, sorry, Jerry. One, I had one question about, um, you said, sorry, geogra- geographically near SkyTrain stations. Um, do you get, is, there, is there a formal sort of limit to that? Like, for example, there's... Uh, development application for the end of Keyside Drive. Um, would that be within that border where you'd say less, you don't need a parking space for every unit? Yes, absolutely. And another thing too is that the two developments are having are providing access to SkyTrain. The one that's being built right now by Boza has an actual direct uh, crossing that will allow people to get right over onto the SkyTrain. So making it easy for people to take transit, people will take transit. Parking is always a negotiation. In these buildings, there are there are standards for the amount of building that we that are that we need to build built into our zoning bylaws. But every every discussion about it, if they provide space for car share, we can take some of the parking away. If they are close to the frequent transit network or next to a SkyTrain station, we can reduce the amount of parking you need they have. But every one is a negotiation, and developers um, Developers have a negotiation for themselves. They have to decide how much parking they need to market their building, but they also recognize that it costs $30,000 or $40,000 per underground parking space. And so their costs get significant, especially the deeper they go. So uh, it's always a negotiation. Um, We've had some discussions towards the end of this council term. We've been having more discussions about whether we've got the balance right, especially next to SkyTrain stations, where we may actually, in my opinion... Uh, I think we're building too much parking near SkyTrain stations right now. I think we're overbuilding it. Okay. So speaking to future infrastructure development, I learned something new this year. I was speaking with uh, Mayor Cote, and he uh, educated me on the fact that as you're moving around, I'm moving away from all of the condo development. Now, that is what most people typically want to speak to because as density tends, people have feel it has a bigger impact on, on their life. But in all the single-family areas, there also is infrastructure development that goes, or infrastructure improvement with development of new homes. And I've noticed that if people don't know, our listeners, New West having very old infrastructure has a combined storm and sewer system. And that is not very modern. And my understanding is with any new construction, uh, we're we're moving away from that. Can you speak to what that future looks like? Or, again, we're speaking to re-election. Do you have an idea of how things should be improved or changed if you were to be re-elected? I think the people in uh, Lower Sapperton right now recognize, uh, recognize what sewer separation looks like. Uh, there are several cities in the Lower Mainland, North Vancouver, uh, Burnaby, some areas of Burnaby, parts of Vancouver that have still have combined flow sewer. There is a long-term plan to pay for fixing that, for separating our storm sewer from our sanitary sewer, and in the long term, it will save us money. But it is a 
expensive project, both for the city and for homeowners. So we are we are being realistic about about the timeline to do that. Uh, when new buildings are built, they must be built to accommodate separated sewer systems so that when we do the work, or even if we have done the work, they can hook into the new system effectively. Um, this the One of the successes we had in this term was we managed to get grants from the federal government. So that all that work that's going on in Sapperton, the federal government paid for half of that. Nice. So we managed to reduce sewer costs, the cost of doing that separation. Unfortunately, it meant we had to do it a little quicker than we would have liked to, <laughs> which meant that it caused a little more disruption to the neighborhood. But ultimately, we saved the city about $5 million in money by getting wow. that grant. And that cool. was significant. Yeah, so that speaks to a question from one of our listeners, though, that I, I, I anticipate when you're saying all this is happening, that it's designed to accommodate the massive increase of density in, in Sapperton. Um, well, it should be noted that it was the federal government, it was new environmental legislation that mandated all uh, local governments in this area to uh, to do a sewer separation within the uh, the run of the Fraser River and the tributaries. So this is a federal government mandate. Um, we have a timeline that we have to accomplish it by. Fortunately, we have been able to get some funding. What happened in the past was that uh, when we had heavy rains, the gates on the Fraser River would open and the sewer and the rain would flow into the river. So it is a serious issue. We do have to deal with it, but it is a federal mandate and uh, all local governments have to put out money to separate sewers. And looking to the future, um, and even even looking to our council has changed from the past, we need to do the quality of life infrastructure as the population grows too. You know, the Westminster Pier Park was not something that was going to happen. That was recent councils that decided to return the waterfront to the people. The the walkways around Queensboro and the additional parkland in Queensboro, the renovations to the library, to community centers, that kind of infrastructure that we want people to move to New West to have the quality of life experience and the appreciation of the city that people who live here now have. And that kind of infrastructure is a very important part of this piece. So even even when we have the additional development on the key, for example, it was our council that said that's got to include some parkland, that's got to include some child care, that's got to include some roadway. So that kind of quality of life infrastructure has to happen with every project and every step of the way. Somehow you missed the most important piece of inf- the biggest piece of infrastructure we're planning to build in this city, which oh, is the Canada cool. Gaze Pool Replacement. Oh, okay, I was so, going to hold you off on the big tease there. Sorry, go ahead. CGP, can, can we just before that, um, <laughs> talking about Pier Park for a second, um, and I might just be behind because I haven't researched it lately, but I know the plan was really to connect the Sapperton Park, Riverfront Parks, to the Pier Parks. Um, where Are you guys able to touch on where we're at with that, timeline-wise? Uh, yes, roadblocks? and you know, um, there are some roadblocks. There are some waterfront lots that we do, do not own. Um, we were approached a few years ago to uh, to purchase uh, a block of lots. We, uh, we couldn't come to any terms, so uh, what we did was we purchased the center one to try to weaken the value of the other lots. That, uh, is, these, that is effective. That's, that's, this that's is, a great, great this, strategy. This is, this is, uh, that was my idea. This is water, oh, this is, this is waterfront <laughs> lots that literally have virtually no land. Uh, there's a railway there. So we, we are doing the connection. We, we, some of the areas, we, we have to put uh, a float in mm-hmm. uh, so that you know cyclists and pedestrians yep. will actually have to go onto the river to be able to get to Sapperton Park. But that is our goal is to make that connection. Right. And the which will connect right to the Trans-Canada Trail as well. Right. For, the, for the benefit, Pat, we'll come back to you in a second. Chuck, let's just close that one for the benefit of our voters. Can you do that in your next term? You said it is our goal. 
I can talk the timelines on that. Yeah, Pat's, oh, Pat's going to be timeline guy. Transportation so, so, uh, so we're talking about individual uh, candidates here to be voted. So, right. if if Pat answers this question and says, "Can we do it in four years?" Chuck, are you going to put yourself in the same bag with him? Oh no, absolutely. I think we can, but I'll <laughs> okay. let Pat answer. All right. Um, so uh, there's two parts to that question. One part is the there there is the land part that we can build. We can build that in the next four years. Uh, the floating part, which is required because we can't be within 15 meters of an active rail line, so we actually have to go into the chuck in order to make it go by. Sorry, not chuck. <laughs> into the water. <laughs> Leave me out of this. Um, <laughs> we have to go into the water and make that work. We have a model. There is a there is a, a walkway very similar to this on the Willamette River just in Portland. It's a very good model. It works great. Uh, the problem is where we want to put it is where the Patillo Bridge is going to be replaced. <laughs> so our timeline will be impacted by the Patillo Bridge product, uh, construction project. Okay. We simply cannot build this until Patillo Bridge has got their piers in the river and are done that work. I do not think that will be done in the first in this four years. Uh, we can we can uh, put the money in place. We can put the funding in place. We can put the plan in place. But I cannot guarantee you that we'll be able to put the th- the piece in place because of just the uncertainty of the bridge project. Good question, Jer. My constituents ask. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Um, we're going to talk about something that no one cares about in New West, maybe briefly, uh, as councillors over the next four years. Um, talk about truck traffic moving through New West is very contentious, very, very contentious. Big container trucks moving through residential areas. I first want the listeners to understand what is actually within the authority of, of city council to affect that. Yeah, and... And, you know, what's really important to note is that the um, city owns its own roads, but we've divested some of those roads to the major uh, road network. And once you give those roads up, Front Street is uh, probably a recent one in the last decade. Uh, once you give that up as a regional road network, you can't just pull it back again and say no more trucks. Um, trucks do have to move. Goods do have to move. Um, we are working with the uh, province to try to get some uh, some uh, alleviate alleviate some of the impacts in uh, Sapperton, and there's some areas in Queensboro that we think that they can actually eliminate the trucks from. But uh, pretty well, the major road network is the major road network, and unless we can get agreement from TransLink and the provincial government, it's very difficult to uh, to say no more trucks. And so speaking towards that, uh, we are having those conversations, especially related to access to the Patala Bridge. Um, we've been active on this, but we don't control how many truck routes there are through the city. You asked the question earlier, what can we not do? That's one of the things. And uh, You know, I, the, the new government is still relatively a new government, and those conversations are early. Under the previous government, we formally requested to reduce the number of truck routes through the city. After all, New Westminster is a mile and a half wide at its widest how many truck routes are really needed that will go through the entire city? Um, and we were turned down flat. And in fact, the BC Truckers Association actually said in public, we don't know what New Westminster is asking for, but we're against it. Whatever it is they're going to ask for. Uh, because they had a no limitations at all position right. and no negotiation. So we're having those discussions and obviously – Waterworks, road construction, all of these things has impacted the community recently in terms of trucks having to divert their routes. But, but uh, you know, we're we're on board in in trying to address this issue. And one of the most effective things we did was create the Commercial Vehicle Enforcement Unit, which has done great work in. Oh, I, I love seeing them on Royal Avenue. Inspections on Royal. <laughs> <laughs> Set up shop there. It's just like picking. 
fish out of barrel, man. <laughs> and they, they're not you know, coming through anymore, most of those. There have been so many trucks pulled off the road, ordered to make repairs, stopped on the spot. Um, that was clever. And we are seeing improvement because now we're getting a rep. Okay, so, so this is a housing-related conversation. And, and the reason why I bring up trucks is because they affect people in their residential neighborhood. Well, there's a regional planning discussion about this, too. Um, I mean, the majority of the trucks who move through our city are port servicing trucks. Um, they, and uh, on the, the, it changed when the tolls on the bridges changed. It changes with how the port distributes their land and where their multimodal stations are. The port has never invested significantly in short sea shipping to move containers up and down the river between the multimodal yards. Uh, and there are there is some regional planning work we need to do to to, to deal with truck traffic, not just because this is not something that's unique to New Westminster. This is something that happens in in Poco's neighborhoods, in North Vancouver's neighborhoods. It's something that happens everywhere. Okay, of course. Is there anything you want to add to the conversation around truck traffic, how it impacts New West residents before we move on? Um, you know, with uh, with the uh, agreements on the new Patilla Bridge and the alignments. I think it will make a little smoother movement of that. It might avoid fewer trucks, you know, uh, trying to rat run through New Westminster. And I think the biggest win was uh, the tolls coming off the Tallow Bridge. But having said that, it's a massive detour to go South Fraser Perimeter Road to Coquitlam when it's like a five-kilometer ride through New West. So there was a huge infrastructure mistake made by a previous government that is hurting us to this day. Yeah, I mean, I think the the improvements of the on and off ramps of the Patula Bridge will help a little bit. Certainly, looks like it in the design plan. Um, but also, I recognize this summer or this summer and last both <laughs> we had road projects going on on Front Street. Right. Yeah, uh, this the project that happened this year was not something the city could control. It was a regional sewer system uh, upgrade being done by Metro Vancouver, and that really impacted our neighborhoods because as soon as you create a our, our system is so. Um, sensitive to an interruption like that. That really, we we know people felt that. We were hearing a lot. We're we're selling two places on Royal right now. We're just seeing them lined up from everywhere. Yeah, it's certainly, it's a big conversation. So I appreciate your input on that. Uh, Our our last uh, core category to talk about is housing related for renters. I I will say that at the beginning of our show today, we did speak to it. Uh, You shared your ideas on how we've increased rental stock and all the rest of it. So I'm not going to ask any questions to this. I think we had a chance to address what our our listeners' concerns were with relation to either uh, rental evictions or um, trying to suppress the cost of rental housing. Um, But I will leave it to you as an open floor uh, to speak to the listeners and tell them what in the the next term you would do uh, to address the, the difficulties for renters in New Westminster? Well, I think that the advocacy work we're doing on rent evictions is really important. We have a provincial government that's promised action on rent evictions. Uh, they took some preliminary steps that are small. The The renters council that's been formed by the province, the renters task force, is is reporting out and reporting out recommendations and the role that cities play and the role that New Westminster plays because we're looked to by other municipalities. We have almost half our population as renters and people know that. And the role that we play in the Union of BC municipalities, meeting with cabinet, including our own cabinet minister, Judy Darcy, right here in the community, that's going to be a huge role. And we have a role to help government understand the impact of renovations on people. Um, the other issue of levels of rent and those sorts of things, you know, the, the province controls all of those issues, but we can still be an advocate. What we can do locally is we can start to use the rental zoning provisions and we can start to use carrot and stick tactics um, that, that are becoming permissible under the new government to try to 
try to do the best we can by by renters in a, a pretty difficult situation. But as a municipal government, we can still be proactive and we still have some options that are new options that we can pursue in the coming term. Right. Yeah, I I did not come onto this council as an affordable housing advocate. That was not my area. You know, that was not the area that I advocated around. Certainly, every every council and, member has sort of more of their sure. specific niche, but you do have sure. to vote on housing. No, no, and, but and it has been an incredible education for me serving on this council. And I'm really proud of the work this council and the councils before us did. New Westminster is a regional leader on affordable housing. Other cities look to New Westminster to find out what we're doing and how we're managing to protect our affordable rental stock, how we're getting... Uh, developers to build new rental stock. We, we've done a lot of good work for decades on this. While, And I, I'm not one to blame others for our problems, but, uh, but in two decades when we had a provincial government who was not interested in affordable housing policy, they simply were not interested in doing anything to help. We had two decades where there was no supportive housing built in this province. And that is that, that is a huge problem, and that is why we are part of where we are. So on the market side, the city's done a lot. We've got more rental being built. Let's we've talk about the future. Housing. Right, we've done that. Uh, in the future right now, we do have the option right now. This is new to do rental-only zoning. We can also do some inclusionary zoning where, where we can actually create zoning where some portion of the new developments are have to have affordable housing components to them. Those are new levers that have been given by the provincial government. We can make the most of those. Um, ultimately, we need to open the door for the market's not going to solve this problem. There is not the market will not solve the affordable housing problem. We need the provincial government to get back into building supportive housing, uh, uh, affordable housing, and we need to, as a city, open the door and make sure that we are uh, grabbing every opportunity the province is giving us to build supported affordable housing. Um. $6.5 billion has been promised by this current government for housing, and I think this is a very important step. You make a good point, Councillor uh, uh, Johnstone. Um, we can't solve the problem of affordability on uh, purchasing housing, but we can, uh, working with the governments and making sure that we fast-track these uh, projects and working with nonprofits that are putting in a combination of middle class, uh, low-income, um, disabled income. Uh, those models are available. There are a couple of societies in New Westminster, one that I work with, that are looking at uh, developing such a model in New Westminster. I think the more people we can get into housing, um, the more comfortable the market will become and the market will reflect that. We need people to have capital income after they pay their shelter. We need them to be able to contribute to the, to the economy. Uh, exorbitant rents are not the way. The last thing I want to say on this is that one of the first things we did was meet with minister, uh, with the housing minister on the fact that people were building rentals in New Westminster. They were leasing it for two years at a certain rent to fill the buildings. When that two years was up, the sky was the limit, and uh, we had to close that loophole in the Rental Tenancy Act. We asked the minister to help us do that. The minister did the, do that, and now we have that is no longer existent. People were actually capitalizing their buildings, paying for a building and waiting for two or three years, raising the rents, recapitalizing the building and putting money in their pocket. That's not good for the community. Okay, so I'm going to ask a, a question that I wish I didn't have to ask, but it comes up in virtually every social forum that talks about rental housing and the, the skyrocketing costs. And so it's put to, to councillors often say, well, a re-election, this is what you should do, and that is rent control. I don't want to spend a lot of time speaking to it. Yes or no, can you affect anything with actual rent control? 
we don't have the legal authority to do that as a local government. Understood. We, so the issue there is what we advocate for. And it's important to understand the 4.5% rent increase is under the old rules uh, of the previous government. I think the new government could have been quicker in changing that formula, but I, I have some confidence that they will. But I want to say, frankly, as a as an owner, townhome owner, if my mortgage suddenly increased by 4.5%, I would find that a, a financial challenge. And I, th- I think that we need that kind of compassion and thinking in our society that your average your average renter is not someone who's seeing a four and a half percent increase in wages every year, and and we play a big role as a city in advocating for those needs. And unfortunately, um, again, we can't expect the market to provide this housing. We need to get back into what we did in the '60s and '70s and '80s in this country, which is build housing for people who can't afford to get into the market, so people have a safe place, safe affordable place to live and senior governments need to bring the money in order to make those things happen and we as local governments need to make sure when that money arrives we have places for them to build and we are ready to get them built yes and uh, the other thing that local governments can do is provide land for housing we've just done that on hastings street we've uh, uh, tendered it and uh, a non-profit has picked it up and they're now go- going to put actual families in those units and so Working with uh, your land base and uh, permitting some of that creative housing is something that all local governments can do. Wonderful. So thanks for your contribution on these these core subjects around housing in New West. We want to give you the opportunity, as we did, Mary, uh, to say anything in closing that you think maybe you didn't have an opportunity to say today that you would like the citizens of New West to hear as you uh, run for re-election here. Jamie, we'll start with you. Um, one of your questions early was about a, a, about our individual lives. I ran a project called the Hospitality Project at the Newestminster Food Bank for about 10 years. And one of our projects was homelessness prevention. So we dealt with about 70 people a year who were about to become homeless. And they would come to us and we would intervene successfully to make sure that didn't happen. Um, that used to be a few people a year. And that program grew to about 70 people a year, people being evicted, people, the most common cause was rent was going up and they didn't have the means to cover the increase. So, you know, there is a real housing crisis out there and it fundamentally starts at that level, but it also shoots right through the entire system where we just don't have the kind of homeowner mobility that we used to have. Um, You know, people like me aren't planning on buying a house after my townhouse. I'm not planning on buying a larger house after that house. Um, so that kind of that kind of mobility that people uh, that's been a big part of our real estate market in past decades is also really being challenged. But people still have some desire to be able to make choices in life. So that that spectrum of housing is also a big part of this. And no offense to anyone out there, but uh, it might help when we take uh, you know specu- speculation and money laundering out of the market more as the government's trying to do, but we need some mobility. We need people to want to be customers again, and we need people to have opportunities around housing, and that means really diversifying the types of housing in the housing market from the old system where everyone was going to have a large yard and a two-story home with a basement. So, Right. Cool. Well, th- thank you, Jamie. Uh, Chuck, your closing comments? Thank you very much, and thanks to all the listeners, uh, and thanks for putting this on. This is a, an incredible venue. I just want to say that uh, as someone that was first elected in 1996, and other than a year and a half, I've been out of politics uh, due to a, an illness. Um, this has been a council. This has been the most productive council that I uh, have uh, I've ever sat on, and, and the reason is is 
people have diverse opinions, but they respect each other. There's not that gotcha moment or somebody trying to set you up or somebody trying to railroad your ideas. And some of the ideas that have come out of that that I don't think would have happened if there was an adverse government is the, the dark fiber. We're leaders in dark fiber, leaders in British Columbia in, in dark fiber. Uh, big industries, uh, tech industries are moving in here and we're diversifying. Open Government, we just won an award first place in Canada, an organization that monitors federal, provincial, and local governments. Number one, Bill Harper uh, received the award on our behalf. We're a smart 21 city. Uh, we're out of 400 cities in the world. We hit the top 21 of wow. from what we do technically. I want this to continue, and uh, I'm, I'm proudly running with uh, Jonathan Cote, uh, Patrick Johnson, Jamie, uh, Mary Trentado, and we have two new candidates, Chinu Das and Nagin, Nagin, Nagin Nakagawa, who we said we, that we would bring them in to share resources with. I think we need to continue this strength. I don't want to risk all of this right now, so I ask all of you, vote for the candidates that are currently on council, vote for Nadine Nakagawa and for Chinu Das, and let's keep this momentum going. Wonderful. Thank you, Chuck. Now, Pat, I will give you your closing comments, but I interrupted you earlier. We are having a little fun, and you are saying the most important piece of infrastructure in New West is Canada Games Pool. I will let you finish your thought. Oh, I just, I, I, he was listing off all the things that we are building in the city to support a growing population. I just, I thought it was funny that he was missing the, the, what is probably going to be the most expensive piece of infrastructure the city has ever built. Um, I'm on the task force that's looking at the plants that pool. It is going to be a really great community center, not just a pool. It's, and I think that it's, uh, it's something to look forward to, but it's also something that we have to be vigilant about. It's a difficult building market right now. Um, it's, uh, there's, we, we are in a good position to get some federal grants to help us pay for that facility. Um, I think that it's a really exciting project for the community. So cool. I'm not going to hit you with any deep, uh, CGP. You don't have any questions. Is it still called CGP? I don't know. I don't think we'll call it the Canada Games School no. again. Oh. We can have a discussion. Okay. We can have a discussion about the, uh, cool. about the uh, any closing comments then. Thanks for joining us today, Pat. Um, yeah, thank you for doing this. It's it's fun. I can't wait to hear this podcast. I know how goofy I sound on the radio, so it should be you interesting. You sound like this all the time. We all do, unfortunately. Yeah, when you hear yeah. yourself through headphones, um, you go, is that really what I sound like? You get used to it. <laughs> yeah, I want to say I am I am really proud of the work we've done. I think, as, to repeat some of Chuck's uh, comments, I think that we are an interesting council of people. I think Chuck and I have managed to disagree on some pretty significant issues in the city, but... No um, way. But... Uh, I think that some of the uh, some of the discussions we have, I mean, that the most important part of this council is Chuck and I can disagree on an issue. We can move on to the next issue, and we and that's that's the past, and we can work together on the next issue. There is a positive, collaborative, teamwork attitude on that council right now, no matter how much we may agree or disagree on something, and that has been really effective at allowing us to get a lot of these policies moved forward. Um, so I am. I'm very proud to be running with the mayor. Mayor Cote, I think, is the right mayor for the time in New Westminster. He really understands urban systems. He understands what a growing city needs. And I'm really proud to work with him and to be on Team Cote. Uh, for myself, um, it's been an incredible learning experience. It's been really rewarding to talk to people and to and to take part in this job. Um, my Personally, I'm all about transparency. I have been blogging at patrickjohnstone.ca Every council meeting that we've had, after every council meeting, I write a report and say, here's the decisions we've made in plain language, hoping to open up that process and let people understand better what actually happens in City Hall. Uh, and I, I think that just through that kind of open communication, uh, if people understand better how the city works, they can make better decisions. 
uh, and they can help us make better decisions. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping to uh, I'm hoping to be on for a second term. And uh, thank you for having us. Well, thanks so much for for joining us. I think it's been a really uh, informative uh, information session for the voters. And we're going to go over. I've been moderating mostly here today. My partner Jeremy Ray has not had nearly as much to say. So, Jeremy, you get the very last the word. Very last closing word. comments. Well, I I've learned a lot just from having you guys in here. I almost feel like, and I didn't know that you, Patrick, you've been. Uh, blogging after the council meetings and things like that because uh you know it's it's stuff that it's good to know what's happening behind closed doors we know that you guys are working away um and doing these things knowing that it's there's you know no adversarial relationships going on um you know i think that's that's helpful and i think it might even be good to do this i it's not gonna be election time but even have somebody come on and give us updates from the city i think that would be potentially helpful We'll just keep the questions coming in. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, good luck in the re-election. And uh, October 20th is the, the big voting day. Yeah, you can. Uh, early voting is on October, I believe, the 10th, the 13th, and the 17th are all early voting days. So you can show up and vote at a few locations on those days. Otherwise, October 20th is a big day. Awesome. Thank Get you. out there and vote New West. Once again, a great big thank you to our guests for joining us today. Chuck Puckmeyer, Jamie McAvoy, Mary Trentadue, Patrick Johnstone. If you want to get a hold of them, you can find their contact information in the show notes. Uh, if you have questions or feedback for us, the co-hosts, please send that to feedback at morealestateshow.com. If you want us to direct follow-up questions to the candidates we had on today, if time permits, we may even have a chance to bring them back on before the October 20th election. So go ahead and send those questions. Uh, again, thanks for listening. We have been Multiple Offers, a real estate show with competing perspectives. I have been Matt Brabens, joined by my partner, Jeremy Ray. We are the New West Guys. You can find us at thenewwestguys.com. And sadly missed today is our third co-host, Jeff McLennan. Jeff is at realestatenewwest.com. He is very excited to be joining us again next week. Next episode, we are going to hear from the New West Progressives and their thoughts on housing in New West. Thanks for listening.